Good morning, good morning. This is the most energetic that 9 a.m. has ever been. I love it. I love it. This, we got to keep this going. This is wonderful. All right, my name is Michael Fueling. I am the lead pastor here at the Village Church. I have the joy to open up God's Word with you. We are in the life of Joseph. Turn with me, Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. Now, if you have been around Christianity for some time, um, you're probably aware that throughout the globe, there are different expressions of Christianity. Every culture has their way of worshiping, and, and the hope is that the, the expressions of worship are faithful to the Word of God and sound doctrine. That is the, the, the preference. Um, but there are all sorts of different expressions, and one specific expression is called Pentecostalism. And uh, I, I want to share with you actually one little unique um, point about Pentecostalism to help us understand um, our text this morning. In Pentecostal circles, um, there is a hunt for the presence of God. Um, there is a hunt, like people will travel, Pentecostals will travel all over the United States of America, even the globe, if they hear that the presence of God has been poured out someplace. Now, oftentimes, the way Pentecostals would describe or define the presence of God being poured out would mean there would be people speaking in tongues, there'd be people passing out, there'd be people having um, sort of like spiritual seizures on the ground, um, there would be a lot of different strange things. Like if you came to Village Church and you saw those things, probably many of you in this room would think, that's strange, and you would walk out the door. That would be, honestly, the most common response for most people. Um, but Pentecostalism is actually um, growing almost quicker than any other version of Christianity around the globe. Interesting insight. Different sermon, different time. But uh, they often call these outpourings, uh, the, these, these, these movements of the Spirit, an outpouring or a revival. Now, go back in time with me. 2000, uh, the year 2000, it was my spring break, and I was going on a mission trip to Florida. Now, this church that I went with, we are all very not Pentecostal. Let me just say that. Um, our doctrine, our practice, we're very conservative. But where we came from at Michigan State, we had a ton of Pentecostal friends. And so when they heard we were going to Florida, that we would be passing through Pensacola, they said, you have to go to Brownsville. And we said, what's happening in Brownsville? And they said, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's unlike anything you've ever seen before, and it's been happening for five years, every night, revival services, you have to go. So just get in my brain. Like, this is a whole, like, different part of my brain. And so we all said to ourselves, we have to go. Like, sheer curiosity. I'm like, oh my gosh, what could have possibly been happening in this place? And so here's what happened. I'll read to you, actually, um, from an article written on the Brownsville Revival. Father's Day, June 18th, 1995, the revival began. Evangelist Steve Hill was the guest speaker. Hill told of a, quote, mighty wind that blew through the church, an account that quickly spread across the Pentecostal community. He'll canceled all of his travel plans and preached several revival services each week for the next five years. And so in Pentecostal cir circles, the presence of God or the anointing of God often comes through a man or a woman, and they actually have evangelists that travel all around the world, and they're said to be anointed. And these people are anointed because wherever they go, the Spirit of God, the presence of God follows them. And then when they do a revival service, then the presence of God ushers out from them, and it goes to all of the other people. 
1997, it was common to have lengthy and rapturous periods of singing and dancing, altars packed with hundreds of writhing or dead still bodies from a variety of ages, races, and socioeconomic conditions. So let me just tell you, um, it did not disappoint. It was one of the most interesting experiences I have ever had. I'm choosing my words carefully. I love you if you are Pentecostal. I am not. So as you come into this church, you probably figure out very quickly we're not Pentecostal. So I walk in, and it was, from my observation, pure and utter chaos. In fact, 1 Corinthians 14.33 was a verse going through my head the entire time. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And in fact, 1 Corinthians 14 is actually talking about when the people of God come together for corporate worship. In our corporate worship, it should be orderly because our God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So I watched as people passed out. I watched as groups of people got into a circle and laughed hysterically 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. I watched people lay hands on people and have them just pass out. And and the whole time I'm wondering, this feels chaotic. That's what it felt like to me. So we went into um, a room because they said, if you want to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, come into this room. And I said, why not? Uh, Let's see what's going to happen. Sheer curiosity. This is just kind of my nature. I think I'm the most curious person ever. So I brought a bunch of my buddies with me and we went in and, and this guy comes up to us and he is trying to impart the Holy Spirit to us. And so his method of impartation is to blow the Holy Spirit on us. Okay, um, I'll bite. <laughs> I'm, I'm 19 years old at the time, and I'm like, sure, let's see what's going to happen. And he goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow on you, and then when I blow on you, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, you're going to start speaking in tongues. So he blows on me. <laughs> it was weird, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. And nothing happened. And I looked at him, and I said, but I already have the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and it was interesting. It was, this, it was this battle of theologies. He didn't believe I had the Holy Spirit. I'm pretty convinced when I read the Word of God in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that all who have trusted in Christ are baptized into the Spirit of God. Like, I'm trying to reconcile our theological differences in this moment. And I remember walking out of that and thinking this. So is this the presence of God? Like, is this what it means? Because if you're Pentecostal and you're really deep into that world, this is one of the greatest measurable, tangible manifestations of the presence of God. And, and so I had some Pentecostal friends, and they would travel from revival to revival to revival, hunting and seeking the presence of God. Now, let's, let's turn the tables on us. We're, we're, by and large, in this church, not Pentecostal. We, as non-charismatic, non-Pentecostal, evangelical Christians, we describe and define the presence of God a little bit differently. Here is the most common way that when you leave our worship service, you are understanding that the presence of God was there. Here's one. When we have well-produced and emotional music with lyrics that you agree with. Interesting. When a communicator or a preacher gets up front and tells moving stories, we almost exclusively, if we're not very careful, the the pop evangelical Christian that goes to non-charismatic churches, that's how we define a good service, and it is almost all rooted in how it emotionally made me feel. I I feel like both extremes kind of miss the point, don't you? So here, here's the question that I often wonder when I, when I preach. What if I give the worst sermon ever? 
What if I'm boring? I'm just like, you, like half of you are sleeping and like drooling and snoring. It's happened, by the way, right? So I had this one sermon, right? And I, 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 it was 20 people, unconscious. Like I think the heat was on. I was bored. It was just gone. And then, then this woman comes up to me, and she's in tears. And she is, she's in a place of repentance, and even though my sermon was boring, now let me, let me tell you what also happened that week. Our musicians will tell you, like, um, any given week, a gajillion things can go wrong with tech or instruments or voices or energy or anything, right? Anything can go wrong. Like, we had a mic issue this morning. If that's the least of our problems, praise God, okay? Behind the scenes, you have no idea the chaos that they deal with on a Sunday morning every week. It's something, right? And I remember that Sunday, um, the music was just abysmal. Like, notes were missed. Like, words weren't on the screen. Everything was off. Stuff was cutting out. My sermon was boring. And, of course, we had, like, a ton of visitors. And they're like, what is this place? And, and then it's interesting because even when none of the typical metrics are met, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, was actually still here. He was unmoved by our technology. He was unmoved by my absolute boring sermon. He was unmoved by all of you who love to sleep, right? Unmoved. He's like, okay, like, I can actually still work on your heart when you're asleep. <laughs> right? Like, he doesn't care. So in my brain, I'm thinking like, wow, it was just a really good reminder. This woman comes up and she's in just in repentance. And I, and I just realized, I remembered in that moment, like the presence of God is not contingent on my emotions. It is also not contingent on these crazy expressions that we see. There's so much confusion around the presence of God. Where is he? Why is he there? Where is he not? Are there some places God is and God isn't? And so to prepare us for Genesis 39, I want to give you just a primer, a one-on-one on the presence of God. These are five things that we know about the presence of God, and I really, really pray this is an encouragement to you. Number one, God is omnipresent. This is a slippery term, though, because some people by omnipresence think that God is literally everywhere or in everything, and here's what we say, meaning... God is omnipresent, meaning there is nowhere we can go to get away from God's presence, and God is aware of all things happening everywhere. God is aware of all things happening everywhere. So if you try to get away from God's presence, you get into a space shuttle and you travel for 8 billion light years, can you get away from the presence of God? And the answer is no, he's he's everywhere. Number two. There are some places where God dwells and some places God does not. Uh, I, I want to talk about before Jesus and after Jesus. Again, if you're new to Bible and theology, there's what's called the Old Covenant, okay? Which is the way God, the promise of God, the way God related to the people of Israel before before Jesus. When Jesus came, he brought in a new covenant, okay? And before Jesus, the presence of God dwelled in the temple and it rested on God's people to support them. And so you'd have a king and the spirit of God would rest on the king. Now you can see the spirit of God, but this is the language that the Bible would use so that the spirit of God would be supporting and helping um, prosper. And, And so different people would have the spirit of God on them. And so David prays, cast not your spirit, your presence from me, right? Uh, Some people, I remember reading that in junior high and thinking, oh no, can I do something that would make the spirit of God leave me? And of course, we're talking about a different covenant, a different way that God related to the people of God. And so before Jesus, under the old covenant, this is what you had. The presence of God is in the temple. 
and he's supporting people, resting on them. After Jesus, it changed. After Jesus, the Holy Spirit no longer dwelled in a temple. Where did it dwell? In the people. We're called in the New Testament the new temple, and so the Spirit of God dwells in the people. Now, I need to make this distinction crystal clear. Does the Spirit of God dwell in all people everywhere? No. That is not how the Bible articulates the presence of God. In fact, the presence of God after Jesus is always with and in anyone who has truly trusted in Christ. And then I would say, and only those who have truly trusted in Christ. By the way, this is incredible news. Because when you think about the presence of God, as I preach a sermon, as our worship leaders lead, as we pray over you, if you are unconscious and you have trusted in Christ, the Spirit of God never sleeps. Now, that's not an excuse to fall asleep in a sermon because he's going to do whatever he wants anyways. Like, there is this combination of like, participation with you that is of extreme value that you don't want to miss out on. But the Spirit of God, the presence of God is always with and in you, no matter what. What about when you do the most stupid thing you are capable of doing? Has the presence of God ever left you? Never. This is the most permanent and most reliable part of your life. People come and go. Things come and go. The presence of God, the Spirit of God is permanent. It's always with you. Number three, the presence of God in a genuine believer is a gentle presence 99.9% of the time. Typically, the way we relate to the Spirit, or the way the Spirit relates to us is nudges, convictions, encouragements. I, I think the Spirit is an introvert's greatest friend. Super subtle, takes his time, not too overwhelming, right? Just always there, just good, easy, nudges, convictions. Hey, man, don't do that. Hey, hey, good job. I love that. Hey, don't ever forget, God loves you. That's 99.9% of the Spirit's interactions with true believers. Number four, the 0.1% of the time, the Spirit takes severe action. Anyone ever had the Spirit take severe action in your life? Seven of you. We have a lot of work to do. That's great. No, I understand. It's, there, are, there are, I'm going to get some water. There are those people who, by the way, uh, if I ask you to do anything, you never will. And truth be told, uh, until I started preaching, I was that guy. And then when I realized, oh, it really helps when people respond, then... I started doing that. So FYI, I totally get it. Um, even though seven of you raised your hand, I have a hunch because I know a lot of you, I've watched the Holy Spirit wreck these severe moments of him taking action, many of you in this room. Tears, repentance, healing, worship that isn't just fun or feels good, but worship that actually does transform you as you give God glory. These are really like precious moments, but it's not that the presence of God is more here or less here. It's that the spirit of God is doing something a little bit different. So whether or not I yell at you or whisper to you, my presence hasn't changed. The experience of my presence can shift, can it not? But my presence is fully with you despite that. Number five, my emotions often have little correlation to the actual presence of God. The fruit that happens when the Spirit of God takes either minor or severe actions is that we are changed. Something happens. We are built up. We are transformed. We are encouraged. We are convicted. There are measurable things that happen in those severe moments when the Spirit takes 
action. But oftentimes, we have these emotional experiences, and they're just emotional experiences. Now, I'm an emotional guy. Can you tell? I love emotional experiences. I love feeling good. I love singing. But I, I, I have to tell myself, the presence of God is not more or less here despite what I feel. Maybe what I'm feeling is just a good gift that God has given me when we all sing together. It's just an incredible feeling to sing together in unity and joy with God's people and not to be distracted by feedback on a stage. Like, that's a great feeling. It's a bad feeling when feedback, you're singing, it goes, and it like grinds your ear. Like, nobody wants to feel bad. And so there are these really amazing experiences that we have in corporate worship, and those are wonderful and those are good. But at the same time, I cannot root God's presence in my emotions. He is way more faithful than that. He's way more faithful. Now, Genesis 39. You're like, get to the text, Michael. We're going. There are three sections in this, and I wanted to lay that that foundation for you so we could be clear-headed as we talk about the presence of God. Uh, There are three sections, three parts in this. Here's part number one. It's all introduction. And what I want to just show you is all of the words in orange— This is setting up the story of Joseph with Potiphar's wife. If you don't know the story, you will in a little bit. The story is actually a handful of verses, but there's, before the story, there's a bunch of context. And so here's what the author wants you to know. Let me just read to you everything in orange. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him. The Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for the sake of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had. And so as an introduction to the story, here's what the author wants you to know that you know that you know that you know that you know the Lord is with Joseph. Because on the surface, no one's going to believe that. But here's what, that's what they want you to know. Part two is the story, but let me show you part three. This is kind of the conclusion of the story. This is how it sums up. Um, and, And let me just read to you the highlights of what the author wants you to know when the story is done, because things don't go well for Joseph in the story. But the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord showed him steadfast love. The Lord gave him favor. The Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And again, you get to the end of the story, and here's what you're thinking. There's no way that if God loved him, that if God was with him, if the presence of God was surrounding him, if the presence of God rested on him, remember this is in the Old Testament, there is no way that that could be true because if God was with you, your life would be easy, good, happy, clappy, fun, and you would never be persecuted, put into jail, killed, or otherwise, right? And what this story actually does for Christians is it dismantles are false, circumstance-based, emotion-based concepts of what the presence of God is. So why such an overemphasis on this? Because everyone who reads the story of Joseph would come to one conclusion, God doesn't like this person. Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt... Remember, his brothers tried to kill him, and then they thought, no, we could sell him, so they sold him. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So now he's in Egypt, and, and this is actually really strange because to have a foreign slave... Uh, be serving uh, one of the cabinet members of the most powerful person in the entire world. Like, this is sort of like a, a, a slave from Russia 
working directly for one of the members of the U.S. cabinet. Right? That, that's how crazy this is. So, like, is the Lord up to something? The answer is absolutely. A Christian. I, I want you to remember this context. This man has been betrayed, has sold as a slave. He's 17 years old. Everything he loves, everything he knows is gone probably forever. He no longer owns himself. He is property. So when your life falls apart, and when everything that you have is stripped to nothing, when all your loved ones are gone, where is the presence of God? The Lord is with you, and he is supporting you. Verse 2, the Lord was, what? With Joseph. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his, Egyptians, of his Egyptian master. Verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him. It's so interesting that God was fully present with this young man, and even now his boss is saying, you know what, you have a funny God. He lets you get shipped over here as a slave, but he just loves you and supports you. And that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. How, how do you think this idol worshiper, this Egyptian master, realized it was the Lord who was with Joseph? I'll tell you. There's only one way. Joseph told him. Isn't it, isn't it interesting? Like the moment something goes well with Joseph, Joseph's like, yeah, I couldn't have done that. <laughs> you know, like, like, have you ever been able to do something really, really neat? Like, you did something simple, but then it bore kind of fruit beyond what you thought it was able to do. Like, maybe you started something and it grew. Maybe you, you shared an encouragement with somebody, and then before you know it, they came to Christ. Or maybe you, you taught sometime, and uh, before you know it, people are being transformed, you know, by, by the preaching of the Word of God or just simple encouragement. Like, the Lord takes these small, minuscule acts of faithfulness and then compounds them. Don't you love credit for those, by the way? Look what I did. I gave the greatest sermon I ever did. Half the church was asleep. It was amazing. Everybody got saved. They just didn't know it. It was amazing. But here's what Joseph does. Joseph is like, listen, I, I've already lost everything. I've got nothing else to lose. So let me, just, let me just tell you, if anything good happens, it's Yahweh. Not, it's not me. I mean, I, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to do the right thing. Don't get me wrong. But if anything succeeds, do not give me an ounce of credit. Watch the phrase in verses four to six, all that he had, four times in three verses. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And from the time that he made him an overseer in his house and over... All that he had. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Rewind. Uh, last year, if, if you don't know, um, every year I'll spend about eight, nine, ten days um, in California alone, walking, hiking, praying. That's it. Uh, it was 
um, something that I did not want to do. It is indeed, as an extrovert, one of the most difficult things on the planet. I know for a lot of you, that's your dream. For me, it is labor. I go and I pray, and the Lord just made it clear to me, you need to learn to pray. You need to learn to pray for long periods of time. And so it's like 16-hour days, and, and it's, you know, and so when you kind of like have everything stripped, you got nothing, and you're just, you're with the Lord, it is uh, humbling. And then you obviously like come back to normal life, and, and you see, wow, I'm spinning my wheels in so many places. And, and I began over the years to become like pretty profoundly convicted that um, my lack of a prayer life, which always struggles to this day, is just a struggle. I have to hyper-schedule it and discipline it because it's not natural, intuitive for me the way I want it to be, for sure. Um, so I have to hyper-schedule it. And what I realized is how much work I was doing without the Lord or asking his help. Um, and I looked around, and I saw all of our staff, and, and I realized we are tired. Um, we're spinning our wheels. Like, it felt like things, we weren't able to break through some, some walls. And so last summer, we sat down with our staff, and we said, listen, every Tuesday morning, I'm just going to mandate it, okay? Um, we're going to pray for six hours alone. I don't want you in the building. I don't want you at home. I don't want you to just go pray. And uh, some of our staff, uh, not in a bad attitude whatsoever, but they said, I don't know how to lose six hours a week because we're not allowed to work over a certain amount of hours, right? So, like, if I... If I take six hours a week out, like, how is this going to work? Because I still have a job to do. So am I just going to have to, like, be here on Saturday? And I just said, no, I'd rather actually some things go undone, to be honest. Um, but you never know. Maybe if you go to the Lord, maybe if he works for you, he can accomplish more than you ever could in your 45, 50-hour week. Like, maybe, maybe it's so hard because it's all in your power and strength. And I'm going to be honest, I have been watching area after area after area of my life, and I regularly see them come up where I'm like, holy moly, I'm spinning my wheels because I'm doing it all on my own. And what if the Lord could work with me? What if I, what if I came to him and just said, would you help me? I know I've been pretty independent. And so it's interesting, like some of our staff came back like the next day after we did this, and they said, I didn't know how that was going to go, but that was an incredible, incredible experience. Um, and you know what happens when you pray for six hours? You get distracted. Your mind wanders, right? You, the grace of God is just constantly reminded, like, um, the point is not perfection. The point is just to sit before the Lord and to pray and to plead with him and to worship him and to whatever. Uh, prayer takes so many different expressions. And what I found that summer is that the Lord broke through on so many things that we could never break through on. Why? When the Lord gets a hold of our minuscule work and he chooses to amplify it, A, he gets the glory, but B, honestly, he does way more than we ever could. And why do I keep forgetting this stupid lesson over and over and over again? Anyone relate? Now the story begins, verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Obviously he gets that from his mom, Rebecca. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and she said... Lie with me. <laughs> I don't know why that's the voice. That, that's what I hear in my head. Christian, when temptation is at your doorstep, where is the presence of God? He is with you, supporting you. Verse 8, he refused. I love that line. He refused and he said to his master's wife, Behold, <laughs> I love that line, behold, because of me, Joseph knows full well that his presence is a blessing to this whole household. 
My master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife, in case you forgot. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against pause? Fill in the blank. On paper, who owns Joseph? Potiphar. In Joseph's mind, who owns Joseph? God does. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He did not ask, will we get caught? Joseph has this profound understanding of the presence of God in his life. The nearness of God, the presence of God, the reality of this, and God has been nothing but kind to Joseph. People have been abysmal to Joseph, but God has been kind. Joseph understands this, this point. Whoever owns you determines your destiny. Whoever owns you determines your destiny. And so if, if Potiphar owns him, Potiphar determines his destiny. In America, the most common notion is that I own myself. I am my master. I determine my destiny. But the Christian says something very different. Here's what we say. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. He owns me. He determines my destiny. My body is his body to do with whatever he pleases. And if he puts me in jail under false pretenses, if he allows temptation to come my way, he can do whatever he wants with me because, hear me, I know this is going to be mind-blowing for some of you. What you want doesn't matter. What matters is what he wants. And so if he wants to take this frail body and put it in prison so that he can do something bigger, even if he doesn't tell me right away why he's doing it, do whatever you want. This is yours Anyways, whoever owns you determines your destiny. Now, here, here's the deal. Uh, Joseph and Potiphar's wife is typically preached as a story about temptation. Don't get me wrong. You can learn a lot about overcoming temptation from this. Primarily, what the author wants you to know is that this story is about the presence of God. This story is about who is with Joseph, and when Joseph is aware of God's presence, how it transforms even the way he views temptation. Verse 10 and as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, this is just a constant barrage of temptation, he would not listen to her. Don't you love his just fortitude? He's like, he's like yeah, no, not going to do it. To lie beside her or to be with her. I mean, she's even saying stuff like, just, just, just sit next to me. It's no big deal. Just, no, no, we, don't, we don't have to do all that. Just, just sit next to me. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. No, you'll never get caught. Christian when you feel like you're running out of self-control, where is the presence of God? He is with you, supporting you. Verse 11, but one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment. Keep this in your brain, by the way. What's the last thing that we learned about Joseph when he had a garment? It was ripped off of him and used to tell lies about him. So this is an important word here. She caught him by this garment saying, 
lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Second time, his garment is used, ripped off him physically, and then used to deceive other people. Now, here's an interesting insight. I don't know if you've ever caught this before. What does Joseph have on as he runs out of the house? Nothing. FYI, you pull up to your friend's house. Some dude runs out the window, buck naked. Are you going to think to yourself, now that is a pure, honorable man. (laughs) No, not at all. So now here you are, you're Potiphar's wife. Some naked dude just runs out of your room. Everyone's watching. You have to say something, right? Because they're going to go tell your husband. Everybody's seen it. So she comes up with this great plan, and she says in verse 13, and as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to, to laugh at us. He came to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice, oh, And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. That's what happened. So when my husband comes home, that's the story. Can you believe he would do this? Christian, when you're lied about and your reputation is ruined, where is the presence of God? He is with you. He is supporting you. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought amongst us came in to laugh at me. This is an idiom to sexually violate her. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me. He fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Christian, when you are falsely punished for something you did not do, where is the presence of the Lord? He is with you, supporting you. Look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. I love this. And showed him steadfast love. Chesed. God's covenant, faithful love. God's commitment, if you have said from God, this means that he has covenanted himself to you forever. Despite you, despite your faithlessness, despite your struggles, said is a beautiful thing that every follower of Christ has personally been given. Whether you feel it or not, it doesn't matter. God gives him steadfast love. And again, even in jail, gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Verse 22, the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. Isn't this amazing? We don't know how long this took. We don't don't know the time frames. He could have sat in a, in a, a cell for a while and then was pulled out. You just don't know. All I know is it's never, be, it's never good to be sold as a slave and it's never good to be put in prison. I don't care where you are. But Joseph, I tell you, the Lord is good to him. Verse 20, 
uh, to whatever was done there. He was the one who did it. Verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Why? Because Joseph overcame temptation? No, that's not the point of this. Here's the point. Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. I want want to just share with you in maybe one sentence the point of Genesis 39. God's presence with you is not contingent on your feelings, but on his faithfulness. Who needs a story like Genesis 39? Anyone who's been lied about, anyone who has been abandoned, anybody who has been desperate, anyone who's been in prison, anyone who's struggled with depression, anyone who's ever struggled with sadness or loss or pain, anyone who has ever lifted up their voice to God and say, where are you? Where were you? Why didn't you stop this? God's presence with you is not contingent on your feelings, but on his faithfulness. As we said earlier, if you have trusted in Jesus, God's presence with you is the most reliable reality of your life. So what? Two so what's. Number one, sometimes your faithfulness to God, it will create more trouble for you. I mean, think about this. If he sleeps with Potiphar's wife, he gets to keep his job, but he loses God's favor. Isn't that interesting? Not God's presence, right? You hear the difference? The presence of God would move from supportive to disciplinary. You guys know the difference. You have children. Your children do really great at something. Good job. I want to give you more things now. Your kids do dumb things. They still get your full presence. But is it your supportive presence? It is your disciplinary presence. So, but he gets to keep his job. He doesn't go back to jail. And this would have been something he could have taken into his own hands. If he doesn't sleep with her, He loses his position. He knows this woman is cunning, and he knows he'll probably lose everything, but he'll still have God's favor. Give me God's favor any day, any day over ease of life. Let it be said of us that despite our circumstances, we live as if God is with us, next to us, in the flesh and blood because he is with us and in us by his Holy Spirit. And we live that way. Number two, awareness of God's presence is a game changer for your discipleship. I would contend that if Jesus was with me physically, there are thousands, maybe millions of things I would have not done. You know what what I'm saying? Like, here's an analogy. My children, um, they tend to obey more when I'm there than when I'm not. Isn't that weird? Why? There's something about my presence, my actual physical presence, that changes things. Now, when they disobey in my presence, like belligerently, that's when they're going to get like severe discipline, okay? But it is amazing to me that when they're, when they're, not, when they're not around me, disobedience, unkindness, unloving behavior goes up and up and up and up and up. I get Lord of the Flies, Like, I get that. That makes sense to me. 
But when I'm with them, Lord of the Flies doesn't happen. And here's also what's interesting. You could say, like, negatively. You could say, yeah, but it's, like, behavior modification. It's not who they truly are. I'll be honest. I'm okay with that. Because I don't want my kids giving in to who they truly are. Because when you give in to who you, tr- who you truly are, you give life and power to that. I would like my kids to modify their behavior and not give over to darkness. Now, is that going to be the thing that gets them to the end? No. Jesus has to change their heart. But before that happens, I can tell you this, I, I'm going to do my darn best to not let them give themselves over to their hearts. And then when he does get their heart and truly transform it, it's going to be a beautiful experience. Now, you could say, but it's not real and it's not genuine. Here's what I do know. When I'm with them and I'm guiding them and I'm encouraging them and telling them what to do and what not to do, I only, God willing, only tell them to do things or not do things that are for their good and their life and their joy. Here's what's astounding to me. When my kids do what I say and what the Word of God teaches, they're happy. And when they don't, they're sad. And when other people do, like, the things their parents say, ideally, if they're good parents, right? And they do the things that the Word of God says. You know what's hap- what happens with the kids? They're happy, and then my kids are happy interacting with them. And yet, when they go off and they do what their heart wants, and they live as if no one's watching, and there'll be no consequences, everyone's more sad. I don't even get it. But here's what I do know. I do know that somehow I don't need flesh and blood Jesus holding my hand 24-7 because I have the Holy Spirit inside of me. And that revelation is a game changer. When I realize that every moment, the moment I wake up, the presence of God is with me. He has woken up before I did. Oh, wait, he never went to sleep in the first place. He watches over me. He cares for me. He loves me. He is supporting me. He will not hesitate to rebuke me or to discipline me. Why? Because he loves me. And when you understand truly the actual presence of God, for those of you who trusted in Christ is with you, it is a game changer. Now, every week at Village, we celebrate communion. We look back. We remember what Jesus did for us. So this week, um, there's a song that I've been listening to over and over again for the last month or two. And I asked our band to, to play it. And uh, I want to explain, explain the song because uh, in a couple of minutes, our ushers are going to hand out the elements. And for some of you, the words in the song might, might not make sense. So I want to take a moment and just explain it to you. It's a song called Another in the Fire. Some of you know it, some of you don't. If you're new to the Bible, some of the imagery is going to be new to you. So let me share with you some of the things that you're going to hear in the song. The song is a a retelling of some of the most desperate moments that people had in the Bible. And these are moments when God's presence shows up and God saves them. And these are moments where they're at the end, the end of themselves. And so... um, One of them, it talks about holding back the sea. And this is that moment when all of the Israelites left Egypt and they're standing at the sea. And it's, what are you going to do? You have an army of Egyptians coming after you to kill you and to all your children and to ruin you. Tons and tons, tons of people of Israelites. And so the Lord, the presence of the Lord shows up and he opens the sea and he holds it back so the people could go through. And as soon as they're through, he closes the sea on the Egyptians and many of them die. There's this uh, line, it says, I can feel the ground shake beneath us as the prison walls cave in. Um, the ground is probably not going to shake unless there's another earthquake some in Illinois. I think even then it's got to be like pretty heavy for us to feel. <laughs> this is a retelling of a story in the book of Acts where the, there was an earthquake and the prison, the prison gates opened and they walked out free. 
concerned they were going to be killed the next day. And the Lord, in this moment of desperation, intervened and showed up. The chorus says, there's another in the fire, which um, is weird if you don't know, if you don't know the root of it. Let me just tell you about one of the most desperate moments three men had in the Bible, and I want to remind you of this. It's from the book of Daniel, chapter 3. It says this, the Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Like, what a rage. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. I mean, this is it. Like, you're going to die. You're done. I mean, you can't win against fire. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, whoops, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound, they fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. And it was none other than Jesus. Then the song culminates. It culminates with our greatest foe the greatest foe with which we cannot overcome, which is our sin. And it tells the story of Jesus conquering sin on the cross to the resurrection. And we're reminded our hearts are thrown back to this, like whether or not you have trusted in Christ, let's say you have not, there is no way for you to overcome this great foe that will destroy you unless you trust in Jesus and he heals you. And for some of you, you are facing or you will face one day something that you're just like, unless you show up, there's nothing I can do. And all throughout scripture, and even as we remember communion, this is the God who showed up and who saves and rescues his people. So if you're new with us and you've never, um, you've never been here before, if you have trusted in Christ, join us. If you've never trusted in Christ and the elements are passed by, let them pass by. Don't partake. Uh, communion is a proclamation that you believe in Jesus' death, burial, resurrection on your behalf. Nobody will look down on you or judge you. What we're going to do is we're going to have a time of silence, and this will be an opportunity for you to talk to God, to give thanks to God, to apologize, to repent, to listen. When we're done, I'm going to pray, and, and uh, we're going to sing the song together, and the ushers are going to hand out the elements. After they're done, if you'd hold on to them at the end of the song, I'll come back up, and, and we're going to partake of these elements together as a symbol of our unity in Jesus as we remember what he has done for us. Let's have a time of silence. <laughs>